You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering sensual please remain and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. Now, Boris Johnson has provoked more unrest among some Conservative MPs as he pushed through changes to social care funding. MPs narrowly approved an amendment to the government's social care legislation, with 18 Conservatives rebelling and 28 defying the whip to abstain. A policy paper last week revealed that costs paid by local councils won't count towards the £86,000 lifetime cap on care costs. Critics say the change will mean that those with minimal assets could be forced to sell their homes to pay for support, and that risks disproportionately affecting voters in the north of England and the Midlands. Now, Boris Johnson insists that the new system is, quote, incredibly generous. The chair of the Commons Health Select Committee, Jeremy Hunt, who was one of those who abstained from the vote, says that he does understand why these changes were made. I don't think the government's going to concede on this. It's it's £900 million, which is a lot of money. But I hope that as this debate continues later on in the parliament, perhaps the government will concede that this is something they want to look at again. So Jeremy Hunt there. Well, many of Johnson's MPs are still angry about his handling of the ethics dispute involving the former Tory minister Owen Paterson. Also the announcement uh, about the government's railway programme for the north of England about it being scaled back. So there's still quite a lot of annoyance perhaps amongst MPs. Mm. Well, let's discuss that and the many issues this morning with Ben Bradshaw, Labour MP for Exeter. Ben, thanks very much for joining us on the show again. Now, after Years of inaction, the government's finally started to get a grip on social care funding. Are you pleased that progress is is finally being made on this long-standing problem? Well, I'm certainly pleased that it's addressing uh, the problem, uh, yes. Uh, but I think it's going around it in, 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 in the wrong way. I mean, first of all, it announced that it would fund uh, the investment in social care through national insurance, which uh, is, is not uh, progressive. Uh, it's levied disproportionately on younger people and people in work while protecting older, wealthier retirees. And now with this latest hiccup, it's changed the scheme it originally announced. And it seems to be trying to protect even further the property assets of the wealthiest pensioners while removing the protection that was originally proposed uh, for those uh, on moderate and low incomes and with moderate and low house 
uh, values. So I think that there are problems here that are not going to go away, and it doesn't really play very well into the government's whole agenda, uh, which they say is about levelling up. Mm. But under the existing system, nobody gets any support if they have assets of £23,000 or more. The government says that support at least will now go to the to go up to £100,000. So that's surely a pretty big improvement. Yes, it is an improvement, but it will go overwhelmingly to the wealthiest homeowners. And those are the homeowners who tend to, not exclusively, but who are disproportionately in the wealthier part of uh, of the United Kingdom and not in those seats uh, that the Conservatives won uh, from Labour in the North and in the Midlands. So I, I suspect the government will have to look at this again. There was a pretty sizable major- uh, uh, rebellion uh, uh, yesterday, including with some new names. I mean, very unusual, for example, uh, for the chairman of the uh, Health Select Committee, who I suspect has still got ambitions to be to- a future Tory leader, Jeremy Hunt, to rebel. You mentioned him in your introduction. And, and I suspect the House of Lords wants to have a very close look at this. And I very much doubt whether the proposals will survive in their current form, because uh, a lot of Conservative MPs are, are very, very worried about, about this. And the, the opposition are united uh, in their opposition against the way the government's trying to do this. So do you think there's a chance that there may be significant changes to this as it works its way through the, the parliamentary system? Uh, yes, yes, I do. Uh, and it wouldn't be the first time in the last few weeks, indeed in the last couple of years, that this Prime Minister has uh, ex- executed a screeching U-turn. Uh, he's done it on, on, on multiple occasions uh, in the last few weeks. And, and it's, it's, it's difficult to overestimate the impact that has on, on your MP's morale. Because if, if you as a backbench MP are forced to march through the voting lobbies. We still have that in the UK. We, we vote physically uh, against your own uh, wishes and against the interests of your constituents. And you're told uh, that don't worry, everything will be OK. And also you're told, and by the way, there's no chance of a U-turn, so don't think about rebelling. When a day or two later, as the government has on a number of occasions, the government does U-turn, you can imagine you feel pretty annoyed about that and pretty stupid. And I think the number of those occasions has been growing. The number of MPs whose confidence and trust Boris Johnson has lost is growing. And that's a very uh, dangerous position for any prime minister to be in. Mm, But surely Labour can't rely just on the disaffection of uh, Conservative uh, MPs. Also, an election is a long way off, so it's not as if this is going to be tested any time soon. But look, on on another substantive issue, Ben... It's starting to get colder. Thousands of people are still crossing the English Channel every week in small boats. Now, Labour have been really damning about the Home Secretary's performance. How is it that you would tackle the situation in terms of migrant boats and uh, and those desperate people? Well, we need to deal uh, with France and the rest of the European Union. I mean, uh, the great unspoken truth about this, of course, is that this is another uh, consequence of, of Boris Johnson's botched Brexit deal. We used to have a deal with the European Union, which meant that we can send uh, illegal migrants back to the country in Europe that they came from. We don't have that deal anymore, and the government has failed to negotiate a successor deal. We also need to have more legal routes uh, for legal asylum seekers to come into our country. The reason that people are being uh, exploited by uh, these people traffickers is that those league routes have been shut down uh, by the government. 
So I think the government has a long way to go on this. But going back to your point, I I completely accept that we can't just rely as the Labour Party on the government uh, to make mistakes. Uh, Mm. We have to come up with credible alternatives. And I would like to see my own party doing more uh, to do that, both on the uh, on the migrant situation, uh, but also on 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 the on the on how we would fund social care. And I'm confident we'll do that between now and the next election, which may be a lot sooner than any of us expect. Okay. Going back to the issue around migrants, though, if you have more routes for legal migration into the UK, does that just exacerbate the problem? Europe has an enormous issue at its borders now with thousands of migrants, with geopolitics being played out basically on the borders of Europe. And the UK is going to be you know, in, in a similar position. Climate change, war, poverty, all of these things mean increasingly desperate people want to come. Yes, I completely agree with you. And this is a very good example of one of the big challenges that all countries face that can only be resolved internationally. And again, I go back to my point, the fact that we have excluded ourselves from the international organization on our doorstep that helps deal with this and can actually have some impact on this. Uh, And the way we've done it, I think, has helped result in this. But no, I mean, I completely agree with you. And actually, if you look at the raw statistics, uh, the UK at the moment is suffering net um, uh, 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 migration away from us. We're losing more people than are coming here. We have chronic labour shortages. So we actually need more people to come and work here. And I think a a lot of the the British voters understand that, but they don't like it when it's it's disorganised, not rule-based, potentially unfair and it's about people who 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 don't necessarily aren't necessarily genuine refugees or whose skills or labor we might need there's no organization behind it and of course they were they were promised that brexit would lead us to getting back control well if anything it's led us to lose control or at least the control that we had before so i think it's a serious uh, problem for the government it's also a serious challenge for labor and my party is to say what we would do uh, to resolve this uh, issue, which is a very difficult one and affects, as you say, every developed country in the world. On another subject, interesting you say that an election could be coming uh, sooner than people expect. Uh, I see Labour's ratings have gone up a little bit after two weeks of terrible headlines for the government. But does your party really have any uh, way to tackle Boris Johnson? Does, does your party know how to uh, get at Boris Johnson and his uh, Teflon, uh, Teflon support? Well, I think you're seeing that uh, Teflon uh, uh, characteristic wear off somewhat, as you say, with the, with the with the serial missteps the government has has committed in in recent uh, weeks. And if and if you look at our position in, in the polls now, and it's been a difficult period for us as an opposition because the natural tendency uh, of the public in in a in a in a in an unprecedented national crisis like COVID is to rally around uh, the government. But I think as as things return to sort of semi-normal as they are now, it'll be easier for, for Labour to make headway. And uh, Keir Starmer has massively improved the position he inherited from his, his predecessor. And it's only two years ago, remember, that, that, that Labour uh, lost that election in the worst result we'd had since 1935. And one should never underestimate the, 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 the extent of the damage that, that, that um, the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn uh, did to our party. So it was always going to be a long haul. But I think uh, Keir has made extremely good progress, particularly internally within the party, which was very badly needed, which doesn't necessarily get a lot of headlines, but it makes being a Labour Party member and supporter a lot more pleasurable, I can tell you. 
Um, and that's, that's, that's the prerequisite mm. to us being a credible alternative government. And I'm sure that yeah. we'll see a lot more of that to come in the next few months. Well, let's take a look at some of the other stories making news in the world of politics today. A top German diplomat has urged the UK to stand by the post-Brexit Northern Ireland Protocol and more that the dispute over the issue is, quote, not a game. Deputy Foreign Minister Michael Roth told reporters in Brussels that the UK must come to its senses ahead of a meeting with European Union leaders scheduled for next month. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of European Union citizens are still applying to remain in the UK months after the government's post-Brexit deadline. It's a sign that many businesses may be employing people without so-called settled status. People are finding out that they don't have the right papers when they start travelling again or try to change jobs. Last month alone, the Home Office received almost 65,000 applications from EU citizens to stay in the country. Well, soaring energy prices have ensnared one of their biggest victims yet. The government will temporarily run gas and electricity supplier Bulb, the first forced nationalisation of a British company since the financial crisis in 2008. The government and energy regulator Ofcom, Ofgem rather, will ensure that uninterrupted supplies continue to Bulb's 1.7 million customers. Soaring gas and power prices have caused 21 suppliers to collapse just since August. Yeah, absolutely, just as we get into the cold months. Well, let's go to the latest now on COVID. Germany's top health official has reiterated that the government there cannot rule out any measures to contain the country's surge in infections. That's a day after Austria became the first European country to reintroduce a lockdown and to make vaccinations compulsory from February next year. Yeah, and EU nations are pushing for an agreement on how long vaccinations protect people and how to manage the booster shot programme. That's as they try to counter the pandemic's fourth wave and safeguard free travel around the region, something which, of course, broke down uh, last year. Well, joining us now is Oksana Pizik, UCL uh, School of Pharmacy. Oksana, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I want to get into uh, just why some countries in Europe, and it isn't the whole continent, but 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 some countries, Austria, the Netherlands, and some countries in Eastern Europe, why are COVID rates just so high there at the moment? Well, certainly if we look towards Eastern Europe, there is a very low um, uptake of vaccines, uh, particularly around the Baltic region. So that's certainly contributing to um, the uh, increase in growth rate, which is very troubling. Um, when we look to Europe, uh, they do West, most of Western Europe um, is uh, much higher than Eastern Europe in terms of vaccine uptake. Um, if we compare to the UK, we see that uh, despite all of the widespread celebration of uh, the vaccine rollout take because uh, we were uh, very fast, we were first, but we did peak early and we've plateaued mm. at about 67% of the total population. That's uh, often you hear a figure that's uh, in the 80 range, but that's when we only think about adults. Um, so it's lower than that when we look at the total population. And so we're more about the middle of the pack when we compare to the rest of European countries, certainly not the very top, um, and just ahead of countries like uh, Austria, Germany, and the Netherlands. And in the Netherlands right now, we know that the crisis, you know, you have cases doubling every 10 days. Um, so that's that's certainly alarming in terms of the rate of growth. Mm. So then what happens in, in in the UK? I mean, the government here hasn't actually ruled out more measures or even a Christmas lockdown, but they've been mm-hmm. very careful about it. And it does at this stage seem much more distant than perhaps what's going on in Europe. Is it still possible, though, that we might have to bring in additional measures in Britain? 
Well, absolutely. I mean, especially now because uh, we're very relaxed about really simple measures like mm-hmm. um, face masks, etc. Although, of course, many employers do have their own rules about this. So it's been left uh, really to organizations and individuals to, to make that call. Uh, but it's a it's a pretty scattered approach. Um, and that's not to say that in the UK does have a higher seven-day infection rate than Germany. Um, so we overall have a higher amount of COVID in the population. I think what uh, has uh, withheld the government from pulling the trigger immediately into going to plan B is that those other countries currently are seeing a more rapid rise uh, in growth. So we're still, we are uh, increasing in cases, that is evident, increasing in cases, increasing in death, a sustained long pressure on the healthcare system uh, as well. So that, that has uh, been pretty consistent throughout, uh, even as cases dropped, it, we had to deal with the backlog in the NHS. So it's not like the, there was reprieve. It just mm. it meant that uh, all the other things that weren't being um, dealt with were now taking precedence. So it's been a pretty long slog for, for frontline healthcare workers. But going into Christmas, this is not a good place where we'd like to be. Uh, if, if, there should be a lot more that uh, we could do to get in a better place before Christmas. Um, however, of course, this is a very politically contentious time. People yes. are very worn out with uh, the idea of a... Um, COVID and the pandemic, and and uh, I think we all want to wish it away, but that's simply not the reality we're living in. The, the government's been pretty clear that it doesn't want to reintroduce more restrictions, although having said that, that, this time last year they were also clear they didn't want to, and of course they were forced to. I think nobody thinks the situation is going to be like last year, let's, let's hope not. But how much worse do you think things would need to be for, for, for serious measures to be put in place uh, over the Christmas period? Well, so one of the cause for concerns, and, and, and this is, uh, you know, the early data on boosters did not convince me, but now certainly we see that uh, there is a, a huge improvement in protection, particularly for um, the uh, elderly, the vulnerable people that are most likely to have the most uh, severe consequences of COVID and end up hospitalized, which has then knock-on effects on healthier populations. Uh, because if they get uh, hit by a car, they may not be seen in A&E, et cetera, uh, because of this increased rate. So making sure that we're on top of boosters, although it looks like we probably won't hit the targets for all of the 50-plus categories until mid-February. Uh, but on the whole, definitely driving up that, particularly as in uh, the U.K., we have been uh, using the AstraZeneca jab for mm-hmm. older populations. So getting that mRNA top-up um, uh, that has a slightly higher level of efficacy, and especially because it's a mixed vaccine strategy, we do see that there's a more robust protection uh, with that combo. So there is a need for that. I don't think the messaging about, uh, I think there's a lot of confusion if people are eligible or not or how to get that. So I think we need to really pour more resources in towards making uh, vulnerable people and those 40-plus uh, categories uh, know that they can come forward to, to, to get uh, their booster shots. And then, again, I think simple things like masks, I know, are uh, unpleasant, but at UCL, you know, um, in many other institutes you, mm. it, where you're working, people uh, do have these things. And I, I do see people on the tube uh, wearing it, but not enough. And I think that uh, simple things that can make a difference, but if it starts to ex- escalate really quickly, as we're seeing in Austria and Germany, even even things like that won't make a difference at where they're at in this stage. So um, I, do, I think it's not too late for Boris to learn from the lessons of the last two years and say that uh, prevention is always better than the cure. 
Yeah, Oksana, we've talked a little bit about um, older people in terms of the booster jabs. What about um, ex- you know the expansion for for younger people? Children um, twelve to fifteen can get one dose, but other countries are doing the kids even younger. What, how much of a difference do we think, kind of medically, that would make to the crisis? Obviously, that's also slightly more of a long term solution in terms of you know weeks or months. Uh, absolutely, but it is uh, one that uh, the delay in which even vaccinating older adolescents uh, mm. was uh, really unhelpful in terms of putting us in the situation that we are now. That that, that contributes to it, um, and, and part of the reason is that places like schools where. Um, it, Children are mixing with other groups, and then they're interacting with intergenerational families. You know, even if we see that uh, we're still understanding the impact of long COVID, but aside from that, we do know that they are uh, transmitters. And so ensuring that uh, they have protect their own health um, from things like long COVID and, and other uh, issues, as well as keeping the overall population um safe and having lower numbers of COVID in uh, community transmission, really we do need to ensure that younger people uh, and children are part of that solution. And, you know, in Canada, the U.S., that's been happening for a long mm. time now. Uh, there's, there is a good number of um, safety evidence that should be persuading uh, the U.K. And even the fact that we're, they're only considering one jab um, for uh, older adolescents is, uh, I think, not consistent with the, uh, the literature and the plans of other countries. There were lots of plaudits for the organisation of the, the initial uh, vaccine programme. How, how do you think things are going with, with the booster programme? It feels like it's, it, it is slower. Is that something to do with the uh, organisation coming from the centre or is it because people are uh, less excited to get a booster jab? Just, just talk us through how it's going with the booster programme. Well, I think there's a combination of reasons. Certainly, I think that the the call for action needs to be stronger uh, and the uh, explanation around what's going on with vaccine waning, particularly as, again, um, throughout the pandemic, we're constantly learning and there's new information uh, that shows us what is the best strategy to go forward with. So what we understood about this uh, vaccine waning and even just overall, the fact that we have Delta uh, which is so much more transmissible, means that we do need an extra uh, level of um, protection. And I don't think that message has been that clear. We haven't really heard that much about it. Um, and I think also perhaps there is a problem with tuning out about it as well as the, in terms of, well, I've had my two doses perhaps some hesitancy around getting a third. So I think uh, if we make it very clear about what the benefits are, uh, what we understand about Delta at this stage, um, and and also to ensure that, no, you know, it's uh, I was really unfortunate to get uh, COVID before the vaccine was available right during the Christmas period. So even if you're double vaccinated, you do not want to spend Christmas two weeks completely knocked out Um, Get your booster because we see breakthrough cases are happening and it's a miserable way to spend Christmas. So even if you are have a mild case and you're young and healthy, you don't have any underlying conditions. That's not how you want to spend the holidays. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.